a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join me today as we engage in more productive, uplifting, and empowering wrong think. I've got some great stuff to talk about today. Among the things we'll be discussing, we'll talk about what's happening to your financial privacy. Yeah, there's some some interesting stuff that's uh, coming down the pike, and your financial privacy, along with a lot of other things, is is in a little bit of trouble. We'll also talk about the ways Americans are pushing back against anti-science, anti-COVID, or rather anti-science COVID restrictions, and uh, we'll even share a few ideas about what you can do to get out of Dodge while there's still time. And last but not least, we will be celebrating rednecks and their refusal to bend the knee. These are just a few of the things straight ahead. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org. We also appreciate the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and LifesavingFood.com. This is the final week that they're going to be running a special. It's going through September 25th. This is for my listeners. 20% discount. This is in honor of National Preparedness Month. So if you click on the link, which I provide in the show notes, to lifesavingfood.com, use the coupon code HIDE at checkout and get a 20% discount. you got to hurry, though. This offer expires on the 25th. You've got just a couple of days to make it happen. I want to share with you a very interesting letter to a vaccinated friend. This was published on LukeRockwell.com recently. And I think it addresses something that a lot of us have found ourselves facing and that uh, we find ourselves at odds with someone in our lives who takes a different stance on the vaccine issue. And I don't just mean, well, I disagree with you. (laughs) Oh, well, that's terrible. Stop the presses. There's disagreement. No, this is going much deeper. We're actually seeing people limit their friendship. I can't talk to you anymore. I can't invite you. To my wedding, I can't invite you to come over and and hang out because, well, you, you know, either are vaccinated or unvaccinated, whatever the case may be. It's a real point of division. James Coolander has written a letter to his vaccinated friend, and this is this is one of the most principled um, defenses of why some people choose not to take the vaccine. And I understand not everybody's going to agree with this. And it's, please understand, the point here is not to, this is not to own the libtards, man. That's that's a very unproductive attitude. It's just name calling. How do you explain to somebody that there's more to this than simply doing your part to help society overcome this terrible illness? Here's how James Coolander puts it. He says, you texted me. I miss my friend. And I replied, I miss you too. Aside from that, I don't know what else to say to you because our paths for the time being have so greatly diverged. Now, he says, I'm torn. I love you for who you are, but I hate you for what you have done. You got the double jab. You were among the first. When you told me, I said nothing. I suppose I was in shock. I couldn't believe it. 
I know you did what you believed was right for you based on the knowledge that you had. But he says, the way I see it, you allowed yourself to get swept up in an insidious mass propaganda campaign, thereby contributing to the most crippling calamity that the world has ever faced. And he says, my point is a simple one. To accept the fraud merely legitimizes it. And you've done exactly that. And here we are. The once unimaginable tyranny on our doorsteps that we have been savagely backed into is the measure of your willingness to be deceived. He says, I cannot tell you how much it pains me to say that. But it's time to call a spade a spade. My equa, my equa, and let me try this again. My equanimity has worn thin. What happened to all the teachings about awakenings and fearlessness that you and I have been distinctly privileged to receive and that you supposedly embraced when it was much easier to do so than it is today? When our lives and our liberty are on the line, how is it that you caved so easily? He says, we've been friends for so long, something like 30 years, that I can hardly believe this is happening. I remember how we met as graduate students in the school library waiting in line to use the copy machine. We recognized each other from a class we were both taking and which we both did not like. It felt good to commiserate with you about this, and we became fast friends. We were never lovers, nor did we want to be. Later you said you looked to me as one of your brothers. I said that I looked to you as the sister I never had. And although I moved out of New York City, I remained close enough to visit for the day, and sometimes we met for a lovely meal at a restaurant we liked as students. But he says, now I feel betrayed. As if out of the blue, you've gone to hang out with a gang of thugs I never liked. Big pharma, big tech, big government, big money. In terms of this so-called pandemic, they're no good for you. They mostly do not, in spite of what they tell you, have your best interest in mind. And they won't be there for you when you are in dire straits. Nothing could be further from the truth. He says, you're consorting with the enemy. You have put your trust in them, yet they lie and are accountable to nobody. And as Thomas Paine once so wisely wrote in his book, The Rights of Man, for which the British crown charged Paine with sedition, a body of men holding themselves accountable to nobody ought not to be trusted by anybody. James Colander says, I am as saddened as I am shocked. I live in a quiet but constant state of grief over the idea that I've lost you to them. Many days I just want to cry. Or scream when I think of how we may all soon be trapped in a surveillance dictatorship swooping over us like the black wings of the angel of death and from which there is, at this point, little chance of escape if things continue to go the way they're going. And to think you believe you have just been granted freedom. Oh, the irony. This is the most sinister and far-reaching scheme of bait and switch ever played upon the human race. Now you'll be offered a passport, proving you've been fully vaccinated that will allow you to go places where the unwashed and unvaccinated heathens like me cannot go. Travel overseas, restaurants, concerts, sporting events. This is likely only the beginning of a vast network of social controls we will all be subjected to in the days to come. So he says, have at it while the going's good. Knock yourself out. Don't worry. Be happy. But the days when you and I were once able to share a lovely meal at that favorite restaurant of ours have for now come to an end. I hope you enjoy yourself watching me from the safety of your sanitized perch at the bar getting turned away at the door. And I won't wave goodbye to the shadowy glimmer of you through the glass, but it is 
goodbye, for a time at least. He says, I'm writing to you now only because I feel I owe you an explanation for my silence. The lack of emails, phone calls, texts, postings, and comments on Facebook. Somehow, I cannot like a Facebook photo of your beautiful sunset or your cute dog or your latest culinary masterpiece. When what I see is nothing short of the equivalence of planets colliding, hurling out of orbit, out of orbit, the end of life as we know it, of life, period, of yours or of the millions of others who got the jab, of mine, even though I'm doing everything I can to keep out of harm's way from this noxious injection. He says, despite the shots being touted as safe, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, VAERS, which is co-managed by the CDC and the FDA, showed a total of 701,561 reports of adverse events from all age groups following COVID vaccines, including 14,925 deaths and 91,523 serious injuries between December 14, 2020 and September, 20, September 10th rather, of 2021. VAERS is a passive reporting system in that it relies on health organizations to send in reports to the CDC and the FDA. And while the reported numbers alone are staggering, a Harvard study claims that less than 10% of the actual deaths and injuries ever get reported to VAERS, which means the real numbers are likely to be much, much higher. And let's not forget the psychological, emotional, economic, and sociological agony that's wreaking havoc on millions of lives around the world. We've not seen anything like this anywhere, nor has anything like this been so ignored, if not censored, by mainstream media and on major social media platforms. All of this tragedy, even though on average about 98.2% of known COVID-19 patients in the U.S. survive. The majority of those who succumb are usually very old with multiple conditions or comorbidities. One of those comorbidities is obesity, but no one dares speak its name. Even the CDC admits that nearly 80% of those who are hospitalized or die in the U.S. because of COVID-19 are overweight or close, or obese rather. I got to pump the brakes here. We are up against the break, but this is a letter to my vaccinated friend. James Colander is the author. I don't know if you have a similar situation in your life, but he goes into some more detail about why he feels he must resist getting the vaccine. We'll come back to it. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing a letter to a vaccinated friend from James Colander. This was published on LewRockwell.com recently. Great uh, resource for wrong thinkers there. And a very interesting letter. I don't know if you have someone in your life who has uh, effectively said, look, we can't be friends right now because you are on the wrong side of the vaccination equation. Well, James Colander is... uh, He's making a pretty strong case for why he chooses to abstain from taking the vaccine. And he says, uh, you know, you certainly won't hear or much or read anything about uh, COVID-19 affecting people who are primarily very old or obese. 
and being survived by about 98, or 98.2% of those who, who catch it. He says, you certainly won't hear or read much about any of that in the mainstream media. When it comes to the most important and critical issues regarding COVID-19 and the so-called vaccines, it appears we no longer have a free, objective, mainstream press of any sort. In fact, he says, I find it frightening and heartbreaking that it's come to this. A democratic nation requires a free flow of any and all information in order to continue to call itself democratic. So when open dialogue dies, democracy dies with it. And so, too, dies justice. He reminds his friend, as you may recall, I lived and worked in China in the late 1980s, and I know from firsthand experience how dictators silence any deviation from the government's desired dictatorial narrative. Simply put, first they make a mockery of it, then they snuff it out. There is only one side to every story, and that side is determined and promulgated by the heavy hand of the Chinese Communist Party which rules the country with an iron fist. Lay that template over our social media and mainstream media with their misinformation and conspiracy theory smears, widespread censorship and deplatforming of alternative, honest voices. And perhaps you can get a glimpse into how this formula is playing out in what's left of the free world now. And so he says, I stand with freedom. Freedom is more important than anything because nothing good and beautiful and true the basic but priceless values that make human life worth living can exist without freedom. And by defending freedom, I'm also defending life, mine, yours, everyone's. And because without freedom, everyone dies in countless ways, if not physically, then spiritually, emotionally, and intellectually, as our liberties are increasingly squashed by powers we can barely fathom, no less see. As the Republican Army, which fought against Franco and the fascists in the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, once so famously coined, it is better to die on one's feet than to live on one's knees. And he says, it's not in my blood or the blood of other defenders of freedom to kneel before despots. James Colander says, this is war. And this war began as all wars begin with only one real goal in mind, control. Land, mineral resources, money, these are mere baubles on the chains with which the few of the rich and powerful running, or I should say ruining this world, have always sought to enslave the rest of us. A planet of nearly 8 billion souls, most of whom just want a living wage, respect, and love, are caught up in a vast, elaborate, perhaps irreversible totalitarian campaign of mind control. A campaign that started out as a shock and awe maneuver, scare headlines and staged video footage and photos of packed emergency rooms, people dead on the street, refrigeration trucks overflowing with body bags, and that has now settled into a daily fusillade of coronavirus cases and deaths and threats of new variants, all of it exaggerated or entirely fabricated to keep those fires of fear well stoked. He says, a campaign whose tactics are not only irrational terror, but also systemic degradation, disorder, and disintegration, thereby creating a world in which the great coronavirus scare and its casualties are but a mere scratch compared to the upheavals that are on the way, unless we stop them. And we can begin by simply becoming courageous enough to refuse to comply with the needless and so far endless controls imposed upon us for our supposed safety and well-being because what's on the actual agenda is our annihilation. 
He says, my friend, I pray that we all live long enough to see a new day when the waking nightmare that we're all ensnared in now will be behind us. A day when the sun, revealer of truth and keeper of wisdom, will break through and shine down from a cloudless, splendid sky. And giddy, blinking back the light and clothed in truth, we will break free from the fetters of fear, look at everyone all around us, reach out, shake hands, and say to them, Peace be with you. And they say to us, and also with you. I get, you know, this may this may strike some people as a little bit dramatic. James Collender, wow, you know, what are you what are you doing this letter to a friend? But how hard is it to explain this to people? I mean, I look, I I have friends, and I, I I'm not saying you know just you know casual acquaintances, people I've known for a long time who are genuinely, and I think uh, you know, in 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 the most appropriate way, they are concerned for my health and urge me get the vaccine. And I, too, have, you know, concerns about, well, gee, I don't know. You know, am I at risk? I certainly have some risks in my life. All that table muscle I've been working on over the years, you know, is probably not doing me any favors. And at the same time, the bigger picture that I'm seeing is pretty clear that uh, there's, there's something here that just doesn't add up. There is, there's a, a mechanism of control that is being established over the population generally. And I think it's being exploited along with those fears. And sadly, I see a lot of people playing into that. And I, and I want to make clear, I don't think that they're doing this because they're, they're stupid or because they're evil. Some of the people at the top, I think, may, may get that definition, you know, or they may, they may be rightly pointed out to be either stupid or evil in their actions, but there are a lot of good people who embrace it just because they're afraid. And fear is that hack of your mind that makes you much easier to manipulate. And like many other people, I've drawn the line and said, I'm not going to be manipulated. I just won't. So, yeah, things are getting interesting. You know, how many places, you know, are, are making it... So, well, you don't work here unless you bend the knee and you get the shot. People who haven't really thought through what is going on, people who haven't really considered how their freedoms might be taken from them, you know, for their own good. They won't make that connection. But those of us who have, you know, we not only, I think we not only have a duty to be true to our principles, but I think we also have a duty to speak up to warn the people around us. And that can be tough. I mean, think of how many different differing viewpoints are competing for your allegiance at any time of the day and with all the various information sources you have available to you. I mean, it's not surprising. We're struggling to know what to believe. I consider myself reasonably well-informed, although I don't for a moment believe I have all the answers. No matter how firmly or how, how convicted I sound, you know, on, on a particular topic, in the back of my mind, I always have to remind myself, Brian, you could be wrong. And I regularly ask myself, and, and, and I regularly actually ask God when, when I'm praying, am I wrong? Am I not seeing something here? Is there something that I have missed? Is my pride blinding me? I think it's important to, to stay humble. I think it's important to be a truth seeker. But once you have committed to a truth, 
I think it's important to be true to it. And I think there comes with it a duty to speak up for others who likewise, you know, value truth over platitudes or, you know, comforting lies. So the goal here is never to make you uncomfortable or to make you fearful or uh, leave you feeling like, you know, you should be angry at everybody or anything. It's just a matter of uh, there are some things that are going on here that I think need to be pointed out, even though they make people uncomfortable. When we come back, we're going to talk about how we will not be free until our minds are free. And believe it or not, that's a decision you and I get to make for ourselves. We'll talk about it just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are one of our key sponsors on this program. They're located in St. George, Utah. And if you are fortunate enough to be moving to the Beehive State and you're looking for a home, these are the folks I would direct you to if you are looking for a mortgage lender. Now, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Heather has the experience and the clout to make sure that you get the loan you need without delay. That's important because right now the real estate market is extremely competitive. The inventory, uh, it's, it's, it's lacking. I'm trying to be diplomatic, but there's not a lot of homes on the market. When a home comes on the market, you have to be ready then. You have to have your financing in order. You can contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage at 435-703-4522. And if you're in St. George, Utah, you can visit them at 619 South Bluff Street. You can even drop them an email and just tell them thanks for being a sponsor of this program. Let's talk about how we won't be free until our minds are free. Caitlin Johnstone writes from uh, Australia. So she knows a few things about uh, what it's like to be in an an increasingly unfree situation. And she walks to the tune of a different drum than, than, or to the beat of a different drum than many of, I would guess, many of my listeners would, would walk to. But she makes an awful lot of sense. So if I disagree with her on some points, I still think it's worth hearing what she has to say because she is willing to question and willing to think outside the box and she's very committed to her principles, as well as being open to new information. So she starts with a quote from a Buddhist text called the, uh, I'm going to see if I get this right, Dhammapada, that's often translated as, we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts, and with our thoughts, we make the world. It's actually kind of a cool sentiment. In other words, our mental habits shape our personality and determine how that personality will behave and that behavior contributes to the shaping of the world. Now, she says we see a similar line in the, oh boy, I'll try this one, Upanishads of Hinduism. As is your desire, so is your intention. As is your intention, so is your will. As is your will, so is your deed. As is your deed, so is your destiny. Now, Caitlin points out these are two different ways of expressing the same timeless observation we see pop up in various forms throughout philosophical traditions around the world, that our actions arise from our thoughts and our thoughts arise from our conditioned mental habits. 
So we need to be very careful about what those mental habits are, since it will ultimately determine our destiny. But the people who pour the most energy and attention into this timeless observation as a group are not the Buddhists, nor the Hindus, nor any religious or philosophical tradition at all. Those who are the most interested in studying and acting upon this insight are the powerful people who rule this world. And she says the powerful understand because people's actions follow from their thoughts and the destiny of the world follows from people's actions. That if you can control the thoughts people think at mass scale, you can control the destiny of the world. Control the way people collectively think about things, you can control the way they act. You can control the way they organize. You can control the way they vote. And this is important because people have become more literate and better at sharing information over the years and therefore more aware of the value of freedom and equality. So it's gotten harder and harder to deny them freedom and equality without sparking violent revolutions and winding up with your head in a basket. She says power structures of more enlightened societies have addressed this dilemma by giving people the illusion of freedom and equality while still keeping them enslaved to the agendas of their rulers via mass-scale psychological manipulation. Media institutions, online platforms, and think tanks are dominated by plutocrats in coordination with secretive government agencies to ensure that the information the majority of people consume serves the social, political, military, and geostrategic interests of the ruling power structure. This is why when you watch the news on TV it always kind of feels like they're deceiving you. It's because that's exactly what's happening. Information that is inconvenient for the powerful is omitted, while information that serves the powerful is amplified and twisted in the most convenient light possible. What a brilliant explanation, by the way, of of media bias. She nails it. And she says this happens not because... The media construct controlling class is personally, personally leaning over the shoulder of every news reporter and instructing them to lie. But because if you control who runs a media outlet, then you will control who they will hire and who they will elevate, naturally giving rise to a system wherein reporters understand. The only way for them to advance their careers is to promote narratives which serve the power, the ruling power establishment and marginalize narratives which don't. So she says the best way to manipulate people without their knowing it is to appeal to their strongest and most unconscious impulses. In practice, that means tugging at the psychological hooks of the ego, which at their base level are fear and identity. If you've made a strong identity out of something like belonging to a certain political party or a certain ideological or ethnic group, then it will carry a lot of egoic weight for you. And if you're in a fear state, then there will be a lot of egoic contraction and you'll consequentially take your thoughts very seriously. Now, if you can appeal to people's base impulses of fear and identification, it becomes very easy to insert ideas into their minds and give them new mental habits. And that's exactly what propagandists do. You need to fear the terrorists, the Russians and the Chinese because they're going to harm you. You need to fear the Democratic, you need to support rather the Democratic Party and everything its pundits tell you because that's your tribe. Those anti vaxxers over there are your real enemy, not the nuclear armed globe spanning power structure that's driving our world to its doom in myriad ways, and on and on and on. Caitlin Johnstone says they give us the illusion of freedom, but as long as they chain our minds with propaganda, we are not free. 
It wouldn't matter if they gave us every personal liberty imaginable if a critical mass of us were still thinking in ways which benefit the powerful because those thoughts would cause us to act, organize, and vote in a way that benefits our rulers and not us. So she says, if we want to free our minds from the chains of power, it's not enough to do research and to uh, memorize a bunch of facts about what's really going on in our nation and world. The most important step to freeing our minds from their shackles is to remove from ourselves the psychological hooks of fear and identity to which those shackles are attached. This means freeing ourselves from the delusions of egoic consciousness, which funny enough brings us right back around to the central tenets of Buddhism and Hinduism again. Caitlin Johnstone writes, as long as humanity is enslaved to the ego, it will remain enslaved to abusive power structures. Because manipulators will always be able to use our egoic hooks to propagandize us into supporting their interests at mass scale. Until then, it won't ultimately matter how many civil liberties we gain or lose, because we'll still be unable to move beyond the bonds of our psychological chains. And so she says, not until humanity collectively breaks free from the gravitational pull of egoic consciousness will we truly blast off into the real potentiality of our species. Now, I get it. Some of that might seem a little bit, uh, you know, uh, abstract. But the bottom line is, if you want to be free, you've got to make your mind up. I'm going to live as a free individual. And that means you've got to be paying attention. doesn't mean you have to be paranoid, right? You're not jumping at every shadow. You're not looking behind every bush and under every rock to find, you know, the latest conspirator. But you've got to know who you are. You've got to know what you stand for. Most importantly, if you wish to uh, claim, use, and defend your rights, you better understand what they are. And not be waiting for government to tell you, okay, here's what your rights are. Here's what you're allowed to do. You know, people who openly express support for limiting the power of government in their lives draw the attention of other people who think that's suspicious. Why would you not want government to be able to, you know, to to intrude into your life in this area or that area? In other words, that's a sure sign you're a criminal. If you, you have something to hide if you want to limit government. Got a great article here from uh, Charles C.W. Cook. This was published on National Review. And the title is, No, You Don't Have to Be a Criminal to Want to Limit Government. We're going to have to come back to it here on the other side of the break. But I'll remind you, there is a link in the show notes. And this is true for each guest that I have on the show. It's true for each commentary or each article that I share I always put them in the show notes so that you have a chance to go in and do your own research. At no point am I asking you, please take my word for this, or better still, just believe whatever I say. I assume that you listen to programs like this one because uh, truth matters to you. That means at some level you are a truth seeker and you're willing to do some of that digging and you know get in there and figure it out for yourself. That's why my show notes exist. It's for those people who are willing to dive a little bit deeper Maybe sit down and uh, have a lengthy seven-course meal of food for thought. Anyway, you'll find the notes at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to share with you an article from Charles C.W. Cook. No, you don't have to be a criminal to want to limit government. It sure seems like that's a that's an attitude, though, that's being, you know, promoted these days. Well, anybody who would want to limit government intrusion in their life or limit government control over their lives must have something to hide. Well, here's, here's how Charles C.W. Cook puts it. He says, at the bulwark, Jim Swift writes... As the Wall Street Journal has reported, one idea that the White House and congressional Democrats have proposed for closing the tax gap involves giving the IRS the ability to get more data about bank accounts with a value over $600, specifically to see the amounts of money flowing in and out. Now, after dismissing the cherry-picked set of criticisms and ignoring that, thus far at least even Democrats in the House have rejected this proposal. So Swift concludes what the Democrats want to do is give the IRS more knowledge about where and how money flows. As the IRS commissioner wrote last month, more and better data will provide the IRS with a lens into otherwise opaque sources of income with historically lower levels of reporting accuracy. Oh, that's a great bureaucratic speak. In opposing this measure, Republicans claim they are standing up for, for privacy and for people who don't yet have bank accounts, but hypothetically might someday. But they're really covering for tax cheats. And Charles C.W. Cook says, ah, yes, that old chestnut, favor restrictions on government power, you're not just wrong, you must be a wannabe criminal. Now, Swift's view has a long pedigree in unthinking and reactionary circles, being of a piece with the notion that if you expect the Fourth Amendment to be rigorously enforced, you have something to hide, or that if you plead the Fifth Amendment in a courtroom, you must be guilty, or that if you hope to uphold the First Amendment so you can speak as freely as you wish, you're probably just a bigot. There is, in fact, no area to which it cannot be stupidly applied. Now, it is true that limiting government power sometimes helps bad actors. But it's rarely true that helping bad actors is the aim of those who wish to limit government. Supporters of the exclusionary rule are not motivated by a desire to help the guilty, but to raise the cost of government malfeasance. Advocates of robust mens rea, in other words, uh, you know, mindset, guilty, why did you do it, requirements, are not motivated by a desire to make prosecutors' jobs more difficult, but by a desire to limit punishment to those who knew they were breaking rules. Proto- proponents of unanimous juries are not seeking to let malefactors go free, but to ensure that the harshest sanctions our society imposes are levied only when it is sure. The ACLU did not defend the marchers at Skokie because it hoped to hear from more neo-Nazis. The ACLU defended the marchers at Skokie because it did not want the government to have the power to silence anyone. There's nothing at all unusual or pernicious about the pro-privacy stance that's upset Swift. Right or wrong, it's about as American a stance as get. After all, the IRS has an enormous amount of power, and especially given some of its recent behavior... It's entirely natural for Americans to oppose expanding that power so that it's permitted to monitor every bank account in the country. That Jim Swift's first reaction on hearing that there was opposition to this absurd proposal was to call its opponents tax cheats. Well, that speaks volumes about him, as well as about what at this point might be only charitably be described as his political worldview. I want to springboard from that to uh, another article here on this same issue. And this is from uh, James Bovard. Probably mentioned it before, but I'm going to say it again. 
Jim Bovard is a voice that you should very strongly consider listening to. I'm not saying you should believe everything he says. I'm just saying this man has an informed take. He is a fearless writer and defender of truth. And he has, he has been around and worked within the Washington establishment long enough. He really has some insights that I don't think you're going to get other places. He refers to it as Biden's wrecking ball for financial privacy. And he says the Biden administration is seeking to compel banks to report to the IRS any bank account with more than $600 in transactions per year. Now, that proposal is a linchpin of Biden's American Families Plan, which will supposedly generate almost $500 billion in federal revenue over the next decade. But previous catch-all financial reporting requirements have helped spur national disasters, complete with pervasive federal looting. Senator Mike Crapo of Idaho denounced the Biden proposal as a surveillance dragnet, a huge violation of privacy, and an egregious abuse of Americans' right to due process by inferring that all U.S. taxpayers are guilty of evading taxes until proven otherwise. Paul Mursky of the Independent Community Bankers of America warns the Biden proposal would be a historic invasion of financial privacy like we've never seen before. Mursky also declared the IRS is absolutely incapable of handling or processing this massive new amount of data, and they would admit as much. That's why they're asking for an additional $80 billion in this budget. Now, Jim Bovard points out, actually, federal money cops have long been overwhelmed by too many reports from banks. Prior federal reporting requirements required bureaucrats or buried bureaucrats, rather, in useless reports and became a de facto terrorist hijacker empowerment act. In other words, the 9-11 attacks were preceded by the biggest failure ever by U.S. financial authorities. Now, he goes into some history here and talks about how the Bank Secrecy Act of 1970 made it a federal crime for banks to keep secrets from the government. And that law obliged banks and other financial institutions to submit a currency transaction report, a CTR, to the federal government for each cash transaction involving more than $10,000. Now, just to put some perspective on this, the Fed's harvest has harvested 17 million CTRs in 2000. Federal agencies were flooded with tons of paper that bureaucrats often never bothered to examine. And beginning in 1996, banks were also obliged to file a suspicious activity report on any transaction that has no business or apparent lawful purpose or is not the sort in which the particular customer would normally be expected to engage. And the feds were soon receiving 200,000 suspicious activity reports per year. Isn't that something? Greg Nozium of the American Civil Liberties Union observed Congress barred financial institutions from telling their customers that their bank had spied on them by reporting their transactions to the federal government. And that deluge of reports provided a smokescreen for the 9-11 plotters. A 2002 United Nations report on terrorist financing noted that a suspicious transaction report had been filed with the U.S. government over a $69,985 wire transfer that Mohammed Atta, leader of the hijackers, received from the United Arab Emirates. However, the report noted this particular transaction was not noticed quickly enough because the report was just one of a very large number and was not distinguishable from those related to other financial crimes. So Atta was on the terrorist watch list, 
But the avalanche of other reports the Fed's received targeting home buyers, boat buyers, and other innocuous transactions provided sufficient cover for the attack to proceed. On October 17th of 2001, Representative Ron Paul was the only member of the House to oppose the International Money Laundering Abatement and Anti-Terrorist Financing Act of 2001, which became Title III of the Patriot Act. At that time, Paul warned that the bill has more to do with the ongoing war against financial privacy than with the war against international terrorism, and he derided it as a laundry list of dangerous, unconstitutional power grabs Well, James Bovard says these measures actually distracted. Actually, I'm sorry, this is Ron Paul. These measures will actually distract from the battle against terrorism by encouraging law enforcement authorities to waste time snooping through the financial records of innocent Americans who simply happen to demonstrate an unusual pattern in their financial dealings. And Jim Bovard says Paul's warnings were prescient. The Patriot Act turbocharged reporting requirements. The feds are now receiving 2 million suspicious activity reports each year. And he says it would be worse than naive to to assume that all the reports that banks send to Washington will sit passively in federal databases. He says the Biden administration's new reporting requirement could be the Bitcoin Relief Act of 2021. 40 banking and financial institutions sent a letter to Congress on September 17th warning the Biden proposal would create tremendous liability for all affected parties by requiring the collection of financial information from nearly every American without proper explanation of how the IRS will store, protect, and use this enormous trove of personal financial information. That's a little bit scary. I mean, the the IRS has perennially been the authoritarian means to paternalistic ends. And Bovard says the Washington Post reported the single biggest source of new revenue in the Biden plan comes from dramatically expanding the clout of the nation's tax agency. Now, Biden relishes condemning tax-dodging billionaires, but that $600 reporting requirement, that's a signal that IRS purgatory could soon be crowded with average Americans. I'm not saying that uh, that makes you wonder about, you know, should I really be keeping money in a bank? But it definitely has me wondering, what are the alternative institutions that I can keep my money? Where there aren't so many prying eyes? Maybe an offshore account? You know, somewhere in the Caymans? I kid. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there and welcome to the show. Hey, whether you're a longtime wrong thinker or just, uh, you know, newly freedom curious... I'm glad you're part of our audience today. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, also by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and also by LifesavingFood.com. I don't know if you were aware of this. I actually had kind of forgotten, but September is National Preparedness Month. And I've been a longtime preparedness advocate. I I just, uh, I don't know, it's, it's more of a lifestyle than an immediate, oh, things are happening, maybe we should get prepared. I think this is the kind of thing that you do consistently over time, and it brings you peace of mind. 
But in celebration of National Preparedness Month, Life Saving Food is offering my listeners a 20% discount. And it doesn't matter if you're using that discount to purchase a starter food kit or a 72-hour kit, a survival kit, maybe a long-term supply. 20% savings, but you have to use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. Now, I've provided a link for you in the show notes at uh, thebrianheidshow.com. Keep in mind, this is a limited-time offer. This is only good through September 25th. But it might be a good idea to take advantage of you know, this uh, this offer from lifesavingfood.com, you know, just in case things ever got unstable for some reason. Can't imagine they would, but, you know, stranger things have happened, right? Anyway, check it out for yourself. And, uh, again, use the coupon code HIDE at checkout to save yourself 20%. So, I hope I'm not the only one who has concerns the challenges ahead of us might spiral out of control. What we've seen happen in the last 19 months has been pretty eye-opening for a lot of people and and pretty demoralizing as well. I like Paul Rosenberg's take saying, don't stress about a Mad Max future. If there's a collapse ahead, he says it will likely lead to better things in the long run. Let me share with you some of the thoughts he has on this. He says, yes, we've all seen scary post-apocalyptic films like Mad Max or TV shows like Jericho. A real collapse, however, he says, will be quite different from such dramas. And he says, beyond that, there's actually a good chance the future will be better. He says, from where I now live, you could draw a 25-mile arc that would include competent people of almost any imaginable specialty. The guys who know how to build and repair refrigerators, machines of all types, cars and roads and houses and windows and computers and a thousand other things. So he says, I'm not overly worried about the dollar going to zero as long as these guys have two critical things. Number one, they must be able to communicate with each other. And number two, they must be left alone with no one telling them, you can't do that without our permission. He says, if either one of these two things are missing, we're screwed. But as long as we have them, we'll be okay. Now, sure, there will be some bad days, a few tragedies, and a surfeit of terror from the fear factories, that is the mainstream media. But in general, Paul Rosenberg is saying productive people will be okay. He says, I knew men who ran a business through the Great Depression. Precisely in in his, uh, he says, in precisely my specialties, which were contracting and engineering. And so he sat down with them and they discussed the difficulties they faced and how they coped with them. They worked through the Depression end-to-end, and they did some pretty impressive projects with absolutely no credit available anywhere. How did they do it? Well, they paid for things creatively, in sections, with barter and on trust. But they also got the job done from the beginning of the Depression to the end. And so he says one period of difficulty, which most of us presume will be coming somehow or another, will be different from the Great Depression or our period of difficulty will be different from the Depression. But as long as we retain the two items mentioned above, we have to be able to communicate with each other, and we must be left alone, meaning nobody telling us you can't do that without our permission. He says, then we're going to be okay. We will get through it. So here's how he walks us through. This is the bad stuff. Let's just say, for instance, there was a complete dollar collapse. What can you expect? Okay, here's the bad stuff. Number one, fear. 
scaring the populace will be the first and essential tool of the rulers. Government relies far more on legitimacy than on force, so the rulers will be very keen on using their number one tool to keep people clustering around them for safety. That's a primary strategy for them. He says you'll also see welfare riots, and this is possible and even probable in some places, presuming that government checks either stop or those checks no longer matter due to massive inflation. However, he says, we all know which areas are likely to be hit, and we can avoid them. If you're in one, he says, you should be doing something about it now. And as horrifying as such a thing may be and should be, Americans, Canadians, and a serious number of Europeans still do have guns and will eventually shoot rioters if they're beating down their neighbor's doors. Also, he warns, in the, end of, in the event of a collapse of the dollar, you would see supply chain disruptions. Since the big corporations are so tightly associated with governments, they will not adapt as quickly as small companies do. In fact, they may lock up while waiting for instructions. This is why stores of key commodities like food and communication will be necessary. There's also the risk of war. And he says this is the traditional distraction from disappointments and government failures. Now, at the time he wrote this, which I think was back in 2013, Syria seemed to be the leading candidate at the moment. Maybe North Korea or some other distant monster will fit the bill. I mean, today, it's what? Domestic terrorism, domestic extremism. Yeah, but war is definitely on the table. There's also the danger of no credit. Now, as scary as that seems to some people, the reality won't be nearly as debilitating as imagined, except for the mega corporations. People will adapt. They'll go back to a 19th century way of buying and selling. Adjustment will be required, but farmers will still need to sell their food, and they'll find ways for productive people to pay them. And there may also be a lack of currency. Dollars will fail in this scenario, along with euros, pounds, and so forth. But there won't be a debilitating lack of currency for two reasons. Lots of people have gold and silver, which are always good. And we have Bitcoin, as well as other cryptocurrencies, which is good currency worldwide. There's one other danger that he points out here, and that is shuttered fire departments. The rulers won't close too many police stations since they want to retain their image as saviors and they need people to fear them. But fire departments and other things may be let go. The scarier things first. But again, as long as we can communicate and adapt, we can just arrange for necessary services in different ways. He says, remember, most of us are blowing 20 to 30 hours per week on TV. We have way more free time than we think we do. Isn't it interesting all the things he was listing? Again, this was written in, in uh, 2013. He was talking about dollar collapse, but I see a lot of this stuff being applicable in the event of a pandemic. And some of the things that he warns about, yep, yep, definitely risks that we see. The, the supply chain disruption, that's a big one. So Paul Rosenberg says, the future will be better if we take care of these two big risks. There are very simple solutions to our two crucial issues, but he remembers simple doesn't always mean easy. So the solutions are people must be able to communicate with each other. He says that one's actually pretty easy. The solution is mesh networks. And he actually has a link in there that uh, will tell you a little bit about what that is. Local networks built with simple Wi-Fi devices, then combined with a few longer links that could create a very nice communications network. Now, you won't be able to use it for videos, but it'll work well for basic communications. 
though he says you really should keep a small electric generator and some gas. And the second part was they must be left alone with no one telling them that you can't do that without our permission. This is for the productive people. And he says the solution to this one is very simple. Do it anyway. Whatever you think of your local government, I very much doubt you think they have a right to starve you, which is what failing to act in your own survival comes out to. So the rule of thumb here is if it's moral, do it. Stop waiting for permission. So while the big collapse, assuming that it does come, will be terrifying to inveterate TV watchers, the reality is actually going to be far less apocalyptic than promised. Assuming that we productive people act like producers. And as producers, we have so much more choice than the others. Indeed, in one way, he says, we could see the collapse as an opportunity to start fresh. And the future will be better if we ultimately say so. I like his his way of thinking here. And I, I realize it may not translate perfectly into our situation. But for instance, the, the practice right now of trying to squeeze the unvaccinated into that uncomfortable corner where you are not free to do anything. You're not free to shop. You're not free to be entertained. You're not free to travel. You're not free to work. This is begging for people to build something parallel to our current society. Doesn't need to be a mirror image. After all, our current society has some pretty big flaws that we probably wouldn't want to repeat. But this is the task for productive people. I'm assuming you're a productive person or you wouldn't be listening to this message. Got a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please check it out. Let's get to work. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, I'm just full of encouragement today, and it's probably because I was able to stumble across just some great gems that I am sharing with you, and you'll find them all listed in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So you hear me talk about a particular article that sparks your interest. Yep, that's where you want to go. And, you know, is it bad that uh, many of the people I admire most are the people who are refusing to go along with authoritarian demands? Off the top of my head, one of the people who really stands out is the gym owner in in New Jersey. And I don't even know the guy's name. I can't tell you the name of his gym. If I, if I thought about it hard enough or if I could Google on the fly, I could probably come up with it for you. But maybe you've seen the guy, the big bearded dude who was told over and over again, you will shut down your gym. I mean, they threatened him in every way possible. They fined him thousands upon thousands of dollars just for having his gym open. He refused to bend the knee and kept his gym open and actually has become kind of a stalwart figure in the business community of standing up to these insane, you're essential, you're not essential distinctions being handed down by local governments and enforced by their police. I admire people like that. And I admire the people who do it in smaller ways, less public ways, you know, who just assert their rights and refuse to go along with what they're being told to do. Well, Hannah Cox has a surprisingly encouraging essay on four ways that Americans are fighting back against anti-science COVID restrictions. What's more American than good old-fashioned civil disobedience? 
Hannah Cox says, in the U.S., it would be easy to believe that the vast majority of people are in lockstep with the government's pandemic policies. Networks are aflush with headlines claiming their polls show a majority of Americans support policies like masks and vaccine mandates. And, of course, detractors are painted as fringe. Well, she says every good political knows that with the right framing, you can get a poll to say anything you want it to. But aside from the unreliable nature of the polls and headlines dominating our airwaves, there is another problem with the media's reporting. They never seem to elevate stories that tell a counter-narrative. Now, one doesn't have to look far to find examples of Americans who've simply had enough of the anti-scientific and unconstitutional COVID mandates. We know and have known for over a year that the majority of masks in use provide little benefit in warding off the coronavirus. Additionally, studies have shown that mask mandates failed to reduce COVID deaths, hospitalizations, or even cases. And on top of all that, we consistently see the same leaders who push these unscientific mandates on the rest of us flout the rules whenever it suits their fancy. Like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez at the Met Gala, or San Francisco Mayor London Breed partying at the local jazz club. Feeling the spirit. (laughs) Vaccine mandates present similar problems. Hannah Cox says besides being flagrantly unconstitutional and a violation of bodily autonomy, these mandates ignore the natural immunity that millions of people have built up. And the rules only get sillier and more nonsensical from there. Former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo forced restaurants and bars to close at 10 p.m. earlier this year as though he thought the coronavirus only came out at night. An athletic association in Ohio allowed students to wrestle but not shake hands before or after matches. And some hot yoga studios require students to wear a mask from the door to the studio before sweating out every drop of water in their body for the next 60 minutes. So it's easy to see why many people are fed up. And in true American fashion, individuals are taking matters into their own hands and carrying out acts of civil disobedience in response. So Hannah Cox says, here are four big examples of ways that people are fighting back and standing up for our founding principle of individual liberty in the process. First one is Knoxville, Tennessee, Mayor Glenn Jacobs, formerly known as the professional wrestler Kane, wrote a letter to President Biden to tell him that Knox County would not comply with his new executive orders on vaccines. In August, the president unrolled sweeping new orders directing the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to require all businesses with 100 or more employees to ensure their workers are vaccinated or tested once a week. She says this is yet another example of a silly pandemic policy as it also ignores the possibility of natural immunity. Furthermore, it's quite obviously unconstitutional for the federal government to mandate the ways private businesses and local governments operate. Jacobs, who's known to be a constitutional stalwart, was having none of it. In his letter, he wrote, quote, as the, as the chief executive of an organization that employs 2,700 individuals, your action adds financial, legal, and regulatory burdens that will ultimately impact Knox County taxpayers. In addition, it potentially hinders our ability to attract quality employees, since many folks in our community will not work somewhere that unjustly imposes vaccine mandates. He says, as a fellow elected official who has sworn an oath to uphold the U.S. Constitution, just as you have, 
I am alarmed by the alacrity with which you issued this order, contradicting both Article 1, Section 1, which vests legislative power in the Congress, and the Tenth Amendment, which recognizes the sovereignty of states or the people over matters the Constitution does not delegate to the federal government. Now that's leadership. Here's the second example Hannah Cox gives. Bus drivers quit over vax mandates as school begins. The Chicago public school system issued a vaccine mandate requiring all employees to be vaccinated by October 15th. In response to the new policy, 73 of the system's public school bus drivers quit the day before fall 2021 semester began. That left 2,100 kids without a ride to school and the district scrambling to make new arrangements. Ultimately, they ended up having to pay parents a $1,000 stipend to use public buses or ride-sharing services to transport their children to school. Now, that's only expected to cover the first two weeks of school, though. Meaning, taxpayers will be left with a hefty bill when all is said and done. And while Chicago's incident got the most attention, they are by no means the only district scrambling to find staff that will comply with their mandates. Business Insider reported a new survey about the bus driver shortage shows just how severe the problem is across the country. The survey found 78% of respondents said the shortage is getting much worse or a little worse per the press release. Over half the respondents, though, described their shortage as severe or desperate. Number three, an example of people fighting back against anti-science COVID restrictions, 125 healthcare workers quit a hospital system in Indiana, the largest hospital system in the state, over vax mandates. Indiana's largest hospital system also attempted to implement a vaccine mandate and was met with swift backlash. A whopping 125 of their staff and personnel decided to leave the system rather than comply with the policy. Now, this comes at a time when hospitals around the country are already facing severe staffing shortages that show no sign of turning around anytime soon. In New York, which is requiring all healthcare workers to get the first dose of the vaccine by September 27th, dozens of staff members walked out of one local hospital. And that facility is now so short-staffed, it recently announced it will no longer be able to deliver babies. Bloomberg reports one in eight nursing professionals do not intend to get the shot, which spells trouble for our entire healthcare system if these mandates persist. Kind of makes you wonder. Who's going to blink? And by the way, I have nothing but the deepest respect for those people who are willing to walk away from a job rather than surrender their personal autonomy and bend that knee to take the jab. Can you imagine what a hard decision that must be? I mean, the economic outlook right now, it's not looking terribly rosy. There are a lot of factors that are conspiring to make it very hard for people to find gainful employment. Not to mention, you know, the president piling, you know, all the requirements and mandates on top of it. These people are heroes in every sense of the word. Even though they're being portrayed as villains by some of those, how dare they walk out on their job? Clearly, there are a lot of folks who don't see what's at stake. I'm just grateful for those who do. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. And can I just add, thank you so much. There are so many different voices and platforms and sources that you can turn to to get a, an idea of what's going on and get an idea of what matters. Thank you for giving me a chance. I really appreciate you being part of my audience. I want to mention, too, I have great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage who make this program possible. Please, if possible, I want you to do business with them. This would be especially applicable to any of my listeners within the state of Utah. If you need a mortgage, whether it's a VA loan or a traditional loan or a reverse mortgage, reach out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They're located in St. George at 619 South Bluff Street. You can call 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Let them know that their message is reaching your ears. So I'm sharing this article from Hannah Cox. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education. Four ways Americans are fighting back against anti-science COVID restrictions. Now, this is only four ways, and we've covered three of them so far. And you may be thinking, yeah, 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 but is it stopping anything? Um, It is not overturning a lot of these mandates, you know, in their tracks. No. But it is definitely applying friction to that ongoing wheel that is slowly crushing people into submission. So I think these are worthy of celebrating. And and who knows, maybe this will inspire people to make a stand in their own way. The fourth example that Hannah Cox gives is school children defying a mask mandate. Apparently there's a popular video on TikTok that shows a group of teens peacefully defying their school's masking policy in Michigan earlier this year. Now, the video took place at Manchester Junior and Senior High School in Washtenaw County, Michigan, whose health department issued a masking order shortly before the event. In the video, parents can be heard encouraging their kids to enter the building, saying they cannot touch you and be kind and respectful. The kids chant, let us in and tell the school official guarding the door that the policy is a mandate, not a law. And eventually the official moves out of the way and allows them to enter the building. Now, famous uh, American philosopher Henry David Thoreau often spoke on the virtues of civil civil disobedience by remarking, I was not born to be forced. I will breathe after my own fashion. Let us see who is the strongest. By the way, that quote quote really should be the rallying cry of every person who does not want to be forced into wearing a mask. I will breathe after my own fashion. Let us see who is the strongest. Hannah Cox says other giants in our history, such as Martin Luther King Jr., utilized civil disobedience to effect great change. From Vietnam draft resistors to our modern-day examples, civil disobedience is a great American tradition that advances civil liberties and individual rights. And she says, these are just a few examples of the ways Americans are allowing, are refusing to allow government bureaucrats to run their lives or make decisions for their bodies. In the famous novel Atlas Shrugged, the world's entrepreneurs and creators tire of unjust government edicts and withdraw from participating in a corrupt system. Well, it would seem that many Americans are experiencing an Atlas Shrugged moment and choosing to walk away when pushed to the breaking point by invasive government policies. To which Hannah Cox says, good for them. These cases should serve as a hopeful reminder of the power of the individual and our ability to fight back against government when it oversteps its bounds. 
I want to springboard from that to uh, Australia, where I watch. I've I've been watching the police getting more and more brutal and cracking down on the protesters in Australia. And and boy, tell you want to talk about a totalitarian crackdown. The lockdowns there have been very very dystopian. And I hear commentator after commentator asking, "How did it come to this? How could it come to this in Australia?" And I realized, well, we're very fortunate here in America that we've not had our guns taken away. The Australian people, they have had their guns taken away for their own safety, of course. And we're talking over the course of the last 25 years, gradually, more and more, they have been disarmed and they've been put at the mercy of those who actually have force. And and it may make some people a little bit upset, but... Uh, Aren't you glad that you live in a place where the rednecks and their refusal to bend the knee is uh, is still, you know, something that government has to contend with? Saw a pretty funny article, actually, from the American Conservative. This is by Michael Warren Davis. It's called Thank God for Rednecks. Who else could keep us from turning into Australia? He says, last summer when all this COVID stuff really kicked off, I got a call from a friend in rural Virginia. He told me a bunch of... Uh, rednecks were going to grocery stores and gas stations, tearing down signs that asked patrons to wear face masks. Now, he says, my friend was annoyed, and so was I. Hey, it's private property. If Sal only wants to sell pizza to folks dressed like Little Bo Peep, and you don't want to dress up as Little Bo Peep, well, go to a different pizzeria. Better yet, cook for yourself. It's not that hard. But he says, now, I thank God every day for those rednecks. A few weeks ago, a friend in Australia called and told me about the country's new COVID app. Residents of South Australia are required to prove they're in quarantine by using face recognition and geolocation on this app. If they fail to check in, the app will notify a bureaucrat with the state's health department. That bureaucrat will then call the police, and the police, in turn, will go to the citizen's home and make sure he's not taking an unauthorized walk so his dog can take a clandestine whiz. We don't tell them how often or when. On a random basis, they have to reply within 15 minutes, said Premier Stephen Marshall. Fair warning, I guess. Then he says, meanwhile, in neighboring Victoria, the government has implemented mandatory contact tracing. The state is forcing customers and stores rather to force customers to check in before they shop. According to Victoria's chief health officer, Professor Brett Sutton, everyone recognizes that we have to do absolutely everything in our power to be able to chase down every single person who may be exposed because it's that one person who is not found who may be the one who spreads it. And you know what? Professor Sutton is right. Since the vaccines aren't 100% effective, the only way we can be absolutely sure we eradicate the virus is by identifying every single carrier before they infect everyone else. Well, if that's Australia's objective, they're going to need a lot more than a smartphone app. I'm sure they'll exhaust every resource. And Michael Warren Davis says, and I'm sure the Australians will let them too. You can tell they're descended from prisoners and prison guards. Another Aussie friend once described his country as an ongoing experiment with uh, Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon. Folks there are so worn down by constant government interference They can't even imagine what true privacy feels like. It's like boiling frogs. And when your country starts out as a penal colony, you're pretty well used to the heat. Now, on the other hand, you can tell Americans are descended from free settlers and freed slaves. Our policy is, and always has been, leave me the hell alone. And it's looking pretty good right about now, too, considering the alternative. 
He says, look, we can get into niceties about private property laws, and I'll probably agree with you. I'm not saying they're perfect, but I sleep better at night knowing the preppers, the truthers, and talk radio enthusiasts are out there just waiting for an excuse to make life miserable for the government. Seriously, imagine if Ron DeSantis did an about-face and required everyone who shops at Publix to sign up for contact tracing. There would be riots. No, actually there wouldn't, because the good folks who work for Publix would refuse to comply. And if the CDC tried to bring out a COVID app like South Australia's, they would be mooned by thousands upon thousands of Americans every 15 minutes. He says, when it comes to our civil liberties, the first line of defense is an old Marine with a Coors Light in one hand and a Remington 870 in the other. He's got his mask pulled down over his chin and a Winston Red dangling from his lips. He has eight Trump stickers on the back of his truck, one that says Booty Hunter, just to mix things up. He's got the Confederate flag tattooed on his left arm, and of course, he's wearing a MAGA hat. This specter haunts Washington, the specter of middle America. We'll call him Old Red. Old Red looms over every meeting of the CDC, the FBI, the DHS, and the ATF. They never speak of him, but they all see him. And the apparatchiks know the moment they overstep their authority, they're going to have to deal with hundreds of thousands of pissed-off rustics. Really, there's no telling how many Beltway power grabs were abandoned for fear of the Great White Rube. So as bad as things are getting here in the States, we can't fathom how much worse things would be without these down-home heroes. Sure, they might carry their paranoid anti-government theories a little too far, but their paranoia is far from unfounded. And even if they sometimes overreact, they keep America from falling into the opposite extreme, creeping tyranny, Aussie style. You can't boil a frog if he flips out every time you reach for the knob. Like them, he says, I'd prefer the burdens of liberty to a warm, sterile despotism. And that seems like an old-fashioned all-American instinct to me. I can't see Davy Crockett sheltering in place because the Department of Health asked him to. I can't see Teddy Roosevelt triple masking. I can't see Johnny Cash standing Dr. Fauci. So he says, my apologies to the anti-maskers in Virginia. I rushed to judge you last summer, and that was wrong. He says, may you continue to resist any whiff of conformism with righteous fury. May you give no quarter to the elite consensus of elite institutions. And may you never stop being pissed off. It may just save this republic. This is Michael Warren Davis. I've got a link to his commentary in today's show notes. This is one you might want to share with friends. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm just going to throw in one more quick reminder for you that uh, this this special, which lasts through September 25th from LifesavingFood.com, that's one of my sponsors, This is one I really hope you'll at least examine and hopefully take advantage of. You can go to the link that I provide in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is part and parcel of National Preparedness Month, which it turns out was all of this month. But, uh, hey, until actually through September 25th, if you go to lifesavingfood.com and you make a purchase there, you can take 20% off simply by using the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E. That's my last name. Use that as your coupon code, 20% off. 
whether you're looking for starter food kits, long-term supply, survival kits. I was really impressed with the uh, I was impressed with the Hunter's food kit since a lot of people will be heading for the hills. Delicious freeze-dried meals that all you have to do is add water in a convenient bucket with an easy grab-and-go handle and and much more affordable than you would think. Plus, again, take 20% off by using Hyde at checkout. All right, one final note for our final segment of the show today. Uh, You know, our deteriorating social and political conditions are causing a lot of people to consider, some of them for the first time, the possibility of removing themselves from the control of the political class. And Doug Casey shares his top three actionable tips on how you can get out of Dodge while there's still time to do so. So this takes the form of an interview that he did with International Man, and uh, it's published on LewRockwell.com. International Man says, you know, almost every government and country in the world is going the wrong direction from a personal freedom standpoint. In the last two years, if, if they've been any indication, the situation could get much worse before it gets better. So they asked Doug Casey, how can individuals limit the impact of government overreach in their day-to-day lives? And Doug Casey says, well, the first thing is to become self-employed. You don't want a job where you're dependent on somebody else or worse, some organization. The bigger the organization, the less relative importance you have and the more danger you're in. So he says, assess your resources and abilities. Try to become an entrepreneur. The world has an unlimited desire for goods and services. An entrepreneur figures out how to satisfy them. Now, it takes thought, knowledge, and hard work. But he also points out there's an unlimited upside. An employee, by contrast, just does what he's told for a wage. Most are easily replaceable cubicle dwellers these days. So being an employee is both high risk and low reward. The second thing he says you can do is not support the state in any way. The state is not your friend. In fact, it's your enemy. It takes a fat slice of your earnings and in return tells you what you can and can't do. Find ways to reduce your contact with it and deny it both resources and approval. Minimize the taxes you pay so that you don't feed the beast. Now, you understand what he's saying? He's not saying cheat on your taxes. He's saying minimize the taxes that you pay. Some of the ways you can do that, you can buy things secondhand. Right? Do you have a uh, do you have a Facebook neighborhood? Right? You can look around. You can find items. Yeah, you have to do a little bit of looking around, but you're denying the state the sales tax. You're denying the federal government's taxes. Just depends on how committed you are. He says, now that includes this uh, denying the state its uh, approval, includes don't participate in elections. I know that's that's like, oh, you can't say that, we have to, that's the high sacrament of our civic religion. But Doug Casey says, your choice is almost always the lesser of two evils anyway. Just remember, the people who want to be in office are desirous of controlling other people. Voters are dupes at best, voting for Tweedledee or Tweedledum, while endorsing the corrupt system itself. In fact, he says it's questionable whether your vote ever does any good or even counts. Ultimately, he says the best situation is the one that Ayn Rand outlined in her novel Atlas Shrugged, which is to put yourself in a position where you can just check out of the system and live in a parallel economy because the old one is going down anyway. Surround yourself with sound, like-minded people to the greatest degree possible. See, if I were to put that in my own terms, I would be saying, 
This is the time to be building your community, wherever you happen to be. And building your community doesn't mean, well, we have to, you know, create a planned unit development and we're all going to live here on the same cul-de-sac and, you know, we'll have regular meetings of, uh, you know, the homeowners association. You don't have to even live next door to each other. But you do need to know who are like-minded people on whom you could count. And the idea about having to be self-employed, oh, man, I've resisted that for so many years, but I'm so grateful to have made the step into full self-employment. And I don't know what it is that, you know, you know what's, what's the answer for you? Well, I don't know what I can do. I don't know what my marketable skills are. Find what you have or get started on developing skills that allow you to be self-employed. Don't stand there and wring your hands waiting for something else, you know, to, to take place. Doug Casey's also asked about how vaccine mandates are threatening millions of people's livelihoods. Politicians and companies are threatening people, telling them get the jab or lose their jobs. And so Doug Casey has asked, what can the average person do to avoid being coerced by such threats? And he says, well, this is another reason you don't want to be reliant on an employer and why you want to be an entrepreneur. Other than that, He says you should take opportunities to speak out because most people lack courage and keep their thoughts to themselves. And that's a big mistake. Don't roll over just because it's convenient. If you act like a docile sheep or scared rabbit, you'll get what you deserve. He says in the short run, there are ways to avoid the vaccine. For instance, the cities are full of bums on the street. Maybe you can find someone who looks like you. Lend him your ID. Shepherd him to a Walgreens and have him take the vaccination in your stead to get the paper. Although he says, I'm sure that's just a temporary palliative because it would appear they're going to make people take booster shots every six months as the virus mutates. And they'll probably require some kind of bioidentification or the implementation of a chip to ensure that you don't find a way to get around this, in addition to imposing nasty penalties, which you're already seeing with people using uh, falsified vaccine cards. Now, some people have thought about radical counters to the threats of government and corporations. For instance, if airlines require you become vaccinated in order to fly, some who are well-organized might get a 100 friends together to book a flight and then show up without vaccine cards. Solutions like that are inconvenient and costly, not just for the airlines, though. And it's a real problem since we're moving into a genuine police state. There will likely be draconian and penalties, penalties rather, imposed on the 20% of the country that thinks for itself. But he says, on the other hand, if there are enough adverse reactions to the vaccine, the hysteria might blow over in six months. Doug Casey says, I'm waiting at least another year or two before considering it. I don't like playing the role of a guinea pig, and certainly not unnecessarily. Now, there was another question here. What about the unfortunate people who live behind this new Iron Curtain, where you have like Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and other countries in the so-called free world turning into explicit totalitarian police states? What can these people do to protect themselves? And Doug Casey's answer is, well, as the inmates of the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, Mao's China, Pol Pot's Cambodia, and many other places have found, there's not much you can do once a place becomes a serious police state. Because at that point, it's dangerous to do anything. So he says, at this stage, I think non-cooperation is still 
the best approach. Don't be complacent and make supplicating motions to the apparatchiks of the state when they require you to do things. Don't cooperate to the greatest degree possible. Now, he says, of course, it's easy for me to say this is an academic matter, but it's going to become increasingly dangerous because society is full of rats that want to turn you in as a potential enemy to the state or as a potential terrorist. In fact, he recommends, if, if you haven't watched it already, watch the series The Man in the High Castle, which gives an alternate history of the U.S. if it had lost World War II. And it has lots of interesting discussions and observations about how easily the average American would roll over and cooperate with whoever gives him orders. He also recommends everybody rewatch V for Vendetta. It pretty much mimics, at least up to its spectacular climax, what's going on today right down to the virus. You may not agree with everything that Doug Casey is recommending here, and I'm certainly not insisting that you should. But I will tell you, the guy has a pretty solid take on what's going on, and I find it definitely worth considering some of the options that he offers or some of the observations that he offers and some of the solutions he puts forward. One thing I know for sure, sitting in place, waiting for someone to ride to the rescue is not going to cut it. I hate to end on a sour note, but nobody is coming to rescue you. You are going to have to do it for yourself. The good news is you're more than capable of it. It just requires some courage and commitment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.